Thank you so much for joining us for Ankeny Gospel Church Podcast. On this podcast, you can find sermons, classes, and other resources that continue to invite us into the mission of Jesus and the journey of faith. We hope this is a blessing to you, and if we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out. On that day, they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced because God had given them great joy. The women and children also celebrated, and Jerusalem's rejoicing was heard far away. On that same day, men were placed in charge of the rooms that housed the supplies, contributions, first fruits, and tenths. The legally required portions for the priests and Levites were gathered from the village fields because Judah was grateful to the priests and Levites who were serving. They performed the service of their God and the service of purification, along with the singers and gatekeepers, as David and his son Solomon had prescribed. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there were heads of the singers and songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. So in the days of Zerubbabel and Nehemiah, all Israel contributed the daily portions for the singers and gatekeepers. They also set aside daily portions for the Levites, and the Levites set aside daily portions for Aaron's descendants. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, let's exchange greetings this morning. Good morning. morning. How is everybody? Uh, As you take your copy of the scriptures and turn to Nehemiah chapter 13, we are concluding our summer series in in the book of Ezra, Nehemiah. And all God's people said? (laughs) Um, I... I, I've enjoyed my time in Ezra and Nehemiah, and I hope, I hope it's been as fruitful for you as it has for, for me. Um, there were a few reasons that we chose to go through Ezra and Nehemiah uh, initially. On a practical level, one of the reasons we chose um, Ezra and Nehemiah is to just continue to familiarize ourselves with the story of the scriptures, right? We stand on the shoulders of the faith of those who have gone before, um, of God's um, sanctifying and saving work through his people. And it starts with the scriptures. And we are, we are not just uh, inheritors of that story, but we actually stand on, 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 the, same, on the same story and, and their shoulder. So on a practical level, we want to just familiarize ourselves with, um, with the story of, of the scriptures. But also, another reason we chose Ezra and Nehemiah is to highlight some really important themes and uh, theologies and, and, and topics. And here's a few kind of that we've looked at throughout the last couple of months. We've looked at God's abundant, abundant, abounding, abundant and abounding is a new word, uh, abounding faithfulness and our lack of faithfulness. We've seen in Ezra and Nehemiah that God has always been faithful to his people and more often than not, his people are faithless. We've seen and we've experienced hope in God and his purposes the, the Israelites in Ezra and Nehemiah, there's this, there's this hope. They're, getting, they're returning home. They're going to be home. They're, they're getting a, a new temple. They're, they're getting a new community. They're getting new walls. Like there's this, there's this expectation in God's purposes. We've also experienced disappointment, realizing that God's plans are not always our plans. And what we think might bring fulfillment oftentimes is not what God has for us. Um, we've felt 
internally, this battle of good motives and unintentional consequences, this is something we've seen in them and maybe in ourselves as well of like the, the, the Israelites at this time in Ezra and Nehemiah, a lot of times they have really good motives for doing things, but there are some really bad unintentional consequences um, that they have. And then we've observed um, what doing the work of the Lord can look like. Uh, it's not always as straightforward Doing the Lord's will is not always as straightforward in our lives, and it's definitely not always as straightforward in, in Ezra and Nehemiah's life. It's like every time they're taking a step of faith and they're following the Lord, something, a curveball comes in their way and they have to change course, or a mistake or a sin prevents them from doing something else. So those are some of the themes that we've looked at throughout the, uh, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, and today, Tom kind of stole the thunder a little bit, but today we're going to see that the ending of Ezra and Nehemiah is just a really bad ending for like a book or a story, or anything. Think of like, I was thinking of movies um, while I was preparing for this, and it would be like if uh, Rocky, like the movie Rocky, like the first one when he fights Apollo Creed, he like fights his first fight and he loses, and then he goes through that whole training montage and he works out, and there's that inspiring music in the background, he gets back in the ring, and it's the end of the movie, and it would be as if Rocky like lost, and then the movie just ended. It's like, all right. And then there's no more like sequels and things like that. It'd be like in Star Wars, if you know you have Star Wars episode four, five, and six back in the 70s and yeah, 70s, 80s. And uh, it'd be like in Star Wars episode six, Luke is about to confront his father, Darth Vader. And he's like, I know I can turn him to good. He's bad, but he can be good. It'd be like if after all of this time and this family tension, Luke Skywalker goes to his father, Darth Vader, which I hope that's not a spoiler for anybody because it's, <laughs> It's been around for a long time. He goes to his father, Darth Vader, and instead of him turning Darth Vader and, and beating him and the Darth Vader turning to the good side, it would be as if Luke got there and Darth Vader won and turned Luke to the dark side, and then it's, it's over. Think of any story or book or TV series that has like a good ending and then make it the opposite of that, and that's what the book of Ezra and Nehemiah does. We're gonna see that Nehemiah 13 systematically reverses all of the progress that has been made so far up until this point. All of it happens here in chapter 13. That's the feeling of the end of Ezra and Nehemiah. Now it has a point to it. It's not just a bad ending for the sake of being a bad ending. But in order to get there, I wanna catch us up to speed a little bit on some context um, of, of uh, Nehemiah so that you can see what I mean. If you remember, Nehemiah was a cupbearer this is under the reign of King Artaxerxes in Persia. He gets commissioned by the king and by the Lord to again return to his homeland, to Israel, where his ancestors were. At this time, multiple waves of Israelites have been slowly returning to the land. Nehemiah then leads a, a group of people there, and he gets there, and he starts taking charge. He's like, these walls are, like, this is an embarrassment. Our walls are broken down. Our gates are broken down. Nobody is going to take us seriously unless we get this together. So he starts taking charge. He starts doing things. He faces opposition, but then he overcomes the opposition. And in Nehemiah 7, um, all of the buildings and everything, uh, it ended. So the next couple chapters each have, and this is like, uh, these will be like the the uh, subject lines above it. But in, in Nehemiah chapter 8, what we saw a few weeks ago is we saw the reading of the law, and this will actually be on the screen as well. Nehemiah chapter 8 was the reading of the law. And what happened was after, after the wall was completed, after the temple was completed, after they got all their ducks in a row, what they did is they read the word of the Lord. And what happened was the Israelites heard the word of the Lord and they started to be convicted and they wanted to mourn and weep 
And the Levites were like, hey, no, no, this is a holy day. This is a good thing. This is a celebration. So that's Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 9, then, is their confession of sin. So after they rejoice in Nehemiah chapter 8, then they're like, okay, well, now we need to confess our sin. Because after they heard the law read to them and the story of God read to them, they realized their sin, their personal sin, their corporate sin, their, the sins of their ancestors. And so Nehemiah chapter 9, a few weeks ago, it was so good that we had people come up and, and read it out loud. Um, and it's just this beautiful confession of God's faithfulness and their, their lack of faithfulness. And so then they confess their sins. And then in last week, uh, in chapter 10, Dave showed us that they vowed not to sin again. There was this vow of faithfulness in chapter 10. Chapter 9 was this confession of sin, right? So their natural response is, well, we've sinned. Let's make sure we don't sin again. What are we going to do? We're going to add to the law, and we are going to vow not to to do all these things. We're going to vow not to marry uh, for, uh, foreigners or strangers among them. We're going to vow not to profane the Sabbath. We're going to vow uh, not to neglect the house of God. All of these different vows. And then chapter 11 is just like a list of all the names of everybody who signed it. Ezra Nehemiah loves lists for some reason. <clears throat> and uh, that was chapter 11 and then 12a. And that leads us all the way up to chapter 12, the, the last part of chapter 12, which is what we read um, this morning. So take a look at chapter 12, verse 43. Chapter 12, verse 43. I'm going to read it, and, and then we're going to talk about it a little bit. On that day, they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced because God had given them great joy. The women and the children, they also celebrated, and Jerusalem's rejoicing was heard far away. All of these things have come to culmination. The, the temple is now built. The community now is founded on the word of the Lord. The walls are now completed. They've confessed all their sins. They've made this vow to not sin again. And then we have the this, this sacrifices and uh, dedication of the wall in chapter 12. And there is this great rejoicing. And rightfully so. Because w w when you recognize that the Lord has brought you out of a season of exile and chaos and sin, and you recognize that he has brought you from that and brought you into his promises, into his marvelous light, there, are, there, there is naturally this response of praise. And this makes me sometimes wonder in my own life how I respond when God gives good gifts, right? Like th these people clearly did not deserve it. And he, he gave them back to their land, to their walls. And sometimes I like to praise the gift rather than the giver. And clearly here, they are rejoicing and that joy was heard far away. I mean, this is like a concert. If you're downtown and, any, and you hear a, a concert in a, in a theater outside and you can hear it when you're walking on the other side of the street, you can hear that joy and that rejoicing. Imagine an entire city praising the Lord, saying, thank you, God. You're faithful, You've given us this. It's a, it's, a, it's a joyous celebration. Let's keep going. Uh, let's look at verse 45 through 47 of chapter 12. They performed the service of their God and the service of purification 
along with the singers and gatekeepers, as David and his son Solomon had prescribed. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there were heads of singers and songs and praise and thanksgiving to God. Verse 47, so in the days of Zerubbabel and Nehemiah, all Israel contributed the daily portions for the singers, the gatekeepers. They also set aside daily portions for the Levites, and the Levites set aside daily portions for Aaron's descendants. What this is saying is that, you notice David's name is mentioned. Um, you notice that um, uh, Zerubbabel, which if you remember, that was Ezra 1. Uh, Zerubbabel's name is mentioned. So what these two verses or three verses are saying is that the celebration has not been this significant and serious since the time of David, which is before exile, which is like the golden age of the Israelite uh, dynasty, right? The kingdom, right? And so again, this is the, God is, has given them um, th their stability that they have and they worship him. God has brought them out of exile and brought them to this point in time and they worship him. Now, I wish, Nehemiah, I don't actually wish this, it would be nice if Nehemiah ended here and they celebrated and they worshiped God and they did it, the end. But it doesn't end there. And in fact, Nehemiah 13 is so jarring that a lot of scholars believe that Nehemiah 13 shouldn't be, like it was added later to like mess up with the book. Like it's just a clean ending at the end of, of chapter 12. Then we get to chapter 13 and we're gonna see three broken vows that Israel made prior. We're gonna look at three vows that were broken in chapter 13. So look at chapter 13, verse four, and we're gonna go and continue there. Um, by the way, there's like a 12-year gap between Nehemiah 12 and Nehemiah 13, a 10 to 15-year gap. Uh, now, Nehemiah 13, verse four says this. Now, before this, the priest Eliashib had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was a relative of Tobiah and had prepared a large room for him where they had previously stored the grain offerings, the frankincense, the articles, a tenth of the grain, new wine, fresh oil prescribed for the Levites, singers, gatekeepers, along with the contributions for the priests. Okay, what does this mean? Eliashib is the priest. He's in charge. There are rooms in the temple that are supposed to be for gifts, for offerings. You know, you have frankincense and grain offerings and oil, like dedicated rooms that actually have to be purified that are for offering sacrifices to the Lord. It's their worship ceremony. It would be the equivalent of like a, a storage room with, um, you know, communion and music supplies and a Bible and some commentaries on a book of the Bible. Like it would be the equivalent of that, but like even more amplified. And what it says here is that Eliashib is a relative of Tobiah. If you remember, um, he came up before and he was not the greatest guy. And Eliashib actually took out all of the stuff for worship and let Tobiah live in the temple, which is just like 101, you can't go in the temple, like just period, unless you're a priest, let alone a non-Israelite now living in the temple. This is happening uh, in the 10-year in the gap that's been going on. So verse six, let's see what Nehemiah does. While all of this was happening, I was not in Jerus Jerusalem, excuse me, because I had returned to King Artaxerxes of Babylon in the 32nd year. It was only later that I asked the king for a leave of absence so I could return to Jerusalem. Verse seven, then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done on behalf of Tobiah by providing him a room in the courts of God's 
house. I was greatly displeased and I threw all of Tobiah's household possessions out of the room. Talk about an eviction. I ordered, I ordered that the rooms be purified. I had the articles of the house of God restored along with the grain offerings and the frankincense. Let's keep going. I also found out that because the portions of the Levites had not been given, each of the Levites and the singers performing the servants had gone back to his own field. What this means is that there are Levites who are working, they're the ones leading the worship. They should be leading the worship. This would be equivalent of a pastor or elder or deacon where they're the ones kind of leading the people in worship. And what happened is that nobody was tithing and so the Levites just went home. Like, so there's just nobody doing that. So Nehemiah discovers this and what does he say in verse 11? Therefore, I rebuked the officials asking, why has the house of God been neglected? The first broken vow, and this will be on the screen, the first broken vow is that the house of God is neglected. Now, why is this significant? Because three chapters prior, in chapter 10, verse 39, it says verbatim, after they're making the vow, it says, we will not neglect the house of our God. Chapter 10, they're making this vow. We're not gonna sin again. A decade goes by and they are doing the exact opposite of what they said they were going to do. Let's keep going. Let's look at the second broken vow. Uh, actually, let's look at Nehemiah's response. Nehemiah's response in 12 and 13, I'll summarize this for you. He, he looks at uh, the Levites and he forces them to get back into their position and he forces the people to tithe and to bring the worship back. And then he has this prayer saying, remember me, O God, for what I have done. Now let's look at the second vow. Look down at verse 15. Verse 15 says, at that time, I, Nehemiah, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath. They were also bringing in stores of grain, loading them on donkeys, along with wine, grapes, and figs. All kinds of goods were being brought to Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So I warned them against selling food on that day. The Tyrians living there were importing fish of all kinds and merchandise, selling them on the Sabbath to people of Judah and Jerusalem. And what does he do in verse 17? I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? The second broken vow is they profaned the Sabbath. Profaning the Sabbath. Why is this important? What did they promise to do? What did they vow to do in chapter 10? Chapter 10, verse 31, it says, we will not profane the Sabbath. We will not buy or sell merchandise on the Sabbath to foreigners. And what's happening in chapter 13? Nehemiah finds out that they are buying and they are selling merchandise on the Sabbath, profaning the Sabbath. Nehemiah's response is again one of anger. He threatens to use force against people who continue to break the Sabbath. These merchants, they come to the city wall, the gate, and Nehemiah forcefully closes the gate and he tells them, do not come back on the Sabbath, otherwise I will use force against you. And then he concludes with a little prayer, remember me and them for their sins, I pray. It's a very interesting response. Let's look at the third broken vow, verse 23 of chapter 13. 
the third broken vow. In those days, I also saw Jews who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples, but could not speak Hebrew. The third broken vow is foreign marriages. The third broken vow is that they were marrying strangers and sojourners among them. Why is this important? What did they promise not to do? Multiple times in Ezra and Nehemiah, but also in chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 30. We won't give our daughters in marriage to the surrounding peoples, and we will not take their daughters as wives for our sons. What they promised to do in chapter 10, they are breaking and doing the exact opposite in chapter 13. Now, I want to read through Nehemiah's response on this one, because this is intense. Verse 25. I, Nehemiah, rebuked them. I cursed them. I beat some of their men. I pulled out their hair. I used force. I, I forced them to take an oath before God and said, you must not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters as wives for your sons or yourselves. Why? Verse 26. Didn't King Solomon of Israel sin in matters like this? There wasn't a king among him in the nations. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Yet foreign women drew him into sin. Why then should we hear about you doing the exact same terrible evil, acting unfaithfully against our God by marrying foreign women? Then verse 29, he says, Remember them, my God, for defiling the priesthood, as well as the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. These are severe responses. I mean, Nehemiah is going around beating people up, pulling out their hair and cursing them and forcing them to take an oath not to do it again. What did they do three chapters ago? They took an oath not to do it again. Why is Nehemiah responding so severely to these issues? They, they are out of exile, right? They, are, they have a temple. Check. That's what they wanted. They started out without a temple. Now they have a temple. Check. They did not have a community built around the word of the Lord. Now they have a community supposedly built around the word. They did not have city walls in exile. Now they have city walls in exile. They did not have worship. They did not have worship services for hundreds of years. Now they're having worship services. What is it? Why, 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 why are they not following that? Why is this not the solution? Because Nehemiah, why did Nehemiah respond so severely? Because Nehemiah realized that exile, physical exile in Babylon, Assyria, Persia, is not the real problem. Having a physical temple was not the real problem. Not having a a physical temple is not the real problem. Not having a city with walls and gates, that's not the real problem. Why does Nehemiah end this way? I mean, at the very end, he says, remember me, my God, with favor. That's Nehemiah's response. Please, God, remember me, because I'm trying. I really am. Because Nehemiah realizes, and the authors of Ezra and Nehemiah realize, that exile is not a physical exile. True exile is not one where you're not in your own country. True worship of God does not require a temple. True community in God does not require an ethnic or a geographical boundary of any kind. The reason that Ezra, Nehemiah, and all these Israelites are responding like this, where they say, I promise I'm not going to do this, and they do it. I promise I'm not going to do this, and they do it, is not because of external 
factors. It's because they don't need anything new on the outside. What they need is a new heart. This is exactly what Jeremiah says. At the beginning of Ezra 1, it says, in order to fulfill the words given through Jeremiah, this was kind of fulfilled, but ultimately Jeremiah said, another temple is not going to fix your problem. Another city is not going to fix your problem. You guys fundamentally need a new way to relate to God. And that is only through a new heart. And so we finish Ezra and Nehemiah. I'm going to finish Ezra and Nehemiah, and then we're going to get into the good news, right? We finish Ezra and Nehemiah, and we're like, okay, so them trying harder did not work. Their structures and boundaries that they put in place on themselves did not work. They're relocating to a different spot, running away from their past problems and looking forward to their future hopes and dreams. That didn't work either. All of these things didn't work. What they needed is they needed a a heart of stone turned into a heart of flesh. Which is, which is the perfect, like, uh, ski jump into Jesus, right? Because today, like, we, what does Jesus say? You don't need to go on this mountain to worship. You can worship how? In spirit and in truth. It's in Jesus that he actually says, I am the new temple. And when you are found in me, guess what? You are also the new temple. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies. Jesus says, I am the community. When you abide in me and I in the Father, he it is that bears much fruit. As far as location, Paul says that, you know, you're not citizens of whatever country you live in. You're citizens of where? Of heaven. We live and have a city with its foundations not built on earth. And so have you, I've been asking myself, my, myself this, where have I felt like the Israelites, right? Um, sin patterns that I try to break on my own effort. Um, cycles of thinking and living and believing and relying on God's faithfulness and getting comfortable and then relying on my own faithfulness and self-righteousness and works and getting lazy and apathetic and then being convicted of sin and then relying on, my, relying on God's faithfulness and then relying on my own efforts. Wherever I felt like the Israelites uh, in, in that, there are sometimes I make... I make the burden, I make a burden for myself. Well, in order to follow Jesus well, I need to do this. Or I put that requirement of burden on other people. Well, if they're not, if they're not following Jesus like this, then are they, are they following Jesus? Where do you find yourselves like the Israelites in these moments? Where do you find yourself like Nehemiah? Demanding perfection from others. Falling into the same traps of sin and rebellion that you just came from. I think it's so fascinating that Nehemiah forced them to take another oath. It's like Nehemiah. They took an oath multiple times in this book, and it still didn't work. Is another oath really going to do it? Is another promise really going to do it? Is another, I need to pull myself up by my bootstraps? And, is that really going to do it? The answer is, is, is most clearly No. We have today, what we have today, when we say, I am in Christ, and Christ is in us, the hope of glory, what we have today is what Ezra and Nehemiah longed for. You ever think about that? Moses said in Numbers, I wish that everybody had the spirit of God inside them. He said that. And where are we at today? When Christ gave himself up for us, 
and he ascended into heaven and he sent his spirit in, in, into, and through us, we have today what Moses longed for, what David longed for, what Jeremiah longed for, what Ezra longed for, what Nehemiah longed for. Everything that they are pointing to is saying, you need something fundamentally different because nothing that you do is gonna make you right with God. You need something, you, you, you need to get rid of your, you need a completely new heart. You need to get rid of your heart of stone and, and have a heart of flesh. And we can't do that on our own. What we do, how we do that is by looking to Jesus, who is the fulfillment of all of the law. All of the law and commandments are fulfilled in him. And he says the, the, the law can be summed up in love God, love others. And when we, when we submit to his rule, when we listen, when we open our hands in obedience, the spirit of the living God, who all these people longed for, who raised Christ from the dead, now brings life to our mortal bodies. In Christ, that change is possible. That's it. In Christ, we can break the patterns that we see in Ezra and Nehemiah. In Christ, you can break the patterns. Do you believe that? That you can change in Christ. You, you can break the sin patterns of your heart, of your thoughts. You can be released from the burden that you put on yourselves, that others put on you, that you put on others. Jesus says his burden is easy. His yoke is light. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is why we have Ezra Nehemiah. Because we can say two things. We can say it didn't work then, and we have now what they longed for. In Christ, change is possible. In Christ and through his spirit, we can change our desires even. It's not just like, oh, well, I should love my enemies. We can actually, through the power of the spirit, truly love our enemies. In Christ, we can have a change of heart. In Christ, we can bear the fruit of the spirit. We can have love for one another. We can have joy in difficult times. Peace that surpasses all understanding. We can have patience in a fast world. Generosity, compassion, all of the fruits of the Spirit, and, and more we can have and we do have when we, when we say, yes, Lord, you, you, you are the Lord of my life. So the, the response then is, what now? And I think that, I obviously think that salvation is a moment in time where you were dead and now you are alive, but it is so much more than just a moment. Salvation and discipleship to Jesus is constant. Constant reflection, constant devotion, constant repentance. Repentance is also not a one-time thing. And so maybe, I, I don't know where each of you are, but maybe if you're hearing this, you're in a state where you're, you're, constant, you're there. You're constantly recognizing, yes, Yes, the spirit, I, I need to rely on the spirit. I need to constantly repent. I need to constantly follow the Lord. Um, and, and actually, it's the Lord that's working in and through me. And if so, then and we're gonna have a minute or two of silence here. I want you to just praise the Lord for his faithfulness in your life. Maybe you're in a spot where you're uh, maybe coasting. Well, I was saved then, or I had another moment of clarification in my walk with the Lord then, and I'm kind of riding that wave still. That's, praise the Lord for those moments of conversion and eye-opening and repentance, but also that is, not, that is not walking with the Spirit. Um, so ask the Lord maybe if, if you're kind of feeling like you're coasting, 
or you're in a, a rut, ask the Lord to just reveal that to you. Ask him to give you that desire. Ask him to lead you with his spirit. And maybe some of you are like, I, I want to want that, but I don't. I, I want to... I want to desire the things of the Lord, but my heart's just, just not there yet. Tell the Lord that. Tell the Lord that. And then maybe some of you have never considered the cross and how it is the culmination of the love of God for you. And that to live a life full of these fruits and to live a life and life abundant as Jesus called it, it requires denial of self, requires repentance, it requires faith. And if that's something you've never done before, then, then seek the Lord in that. Ask the Lord to open your eyes, to listen to his still small voice. So I'm gonna give us a minute um, or two of, of, of silence so that we can respond. So after I'm done praying, I'll, I'll let a, a minute or two of silence go past and then Tom will come up after that and uh, lead us in, in communion, which is, which is the, new, the new covenant. So Holy Spirit, we do ask right now that you would do a work in us that we can't do on our own. We ask right now for you to soften us, for you to teach us, Father, we ask that you would hear us when we cry out to you. You promise to. Your word says that you are slow to anger. You are abounding in loving kindness. You are compassionate. You are gracious. Father, show us yourself today. Show us those characteristics. Spirit, I ask that as thoughts cross our heads, as the busyness of life and projects and plans and even shame unhealthy shame, I ask, Spirit, that you would get rid of those thoughts and ultimately that you would guide us in your truth. Thanks again for listening, and we pray this was a blessing to you. If you have any questions or comments about what you heard, our email is info at com, or you can find us on social media at Gospel. Mm-hmm.